Elmer Towns uh, recorded this with you uh, recently in the studio, didn't he? Yes. You know, Elmer has become one of the most prolific writers and speakers on the subject of prayer and fasting. And and as you know, he is the vice president of Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, dean of the University School of Religion. Mm. And uh, and I've known him for a long, long time, but he sure is a prolific author, as you can tell. Well, he is. Uh, his books include The Names of the Holy Spirit, My Father's Names, Ten Sunday Schools That uh, Dared to Change, and Evangelism, and Church Growth, A Practical Encyclopedia, and uh, others. Let's go ahead and hear the interview as we wrap up this edition of Pastor to Pastor. Elmer, it's really a personal privilege that you would take the time to be with us on this edition of Pastor to Pastor. Well, this is my second time on, and we have been friends over the years, and it's, first of all, a personal delight, and second of all, I love Focus on the Family and the great platform it gives us to speak to the total body of Christ and bring us together around the great themes that God would have us to address, I think, at the end of this millennium and as we approach the next millennium. Well, you know, you're so kind to say those things, and we... uh you know, we're praying that God will use this ministry in and beyond the next millennium, and we're, I, I think that the issues that we address are going to be timeless in nature, especially when we talk about your book, Fasting for Spiritual Breakthrough. You, your book is intended to describe the purposes, though, and, and to show the results of fasting. What are some of those results then, Elmer? If I fast without the right motives, of course, then I negate whatever those results might be, but Oh, absolutely. Provided I've got the right motives and, and my intentions are correct, what are some of the results of, of fasting? Well, fasting and prayer always go together. And we fast, I think, to hold back God's judgment. This is an Old Testament theme. And we have to ask, is God angry with America? I don't know if God's angry with America. I think he might be angry with some of our sin. Yeah. And to hold back God's judgment and to get God's favor on our nation. Well, Elmer, evidently you're a believer in this whole concept of fasting. If if every Christian fasted, if every pastor fasted, would it become just another fad or or would there be significance to it? I, I sometimes I worry about the fact that a lot of what we do, we just do because somebody else is doing it or because somebody else tried it. And I uh, I don't know well, if I that's that proper God motivation is, either. I think God is stirring the church. And if it comes from the heart, See, if, is this the fast that I have chosen, God asked. Is this the fast? And then God, at another place, says, um, you know, for us to really come in repentance, remorse, to come to God with all of our hearts, and then he will hear us. And I think that we have to confess the sins, our personal sins, the sins of our church, and the sins of the body of Christ, and the sins of the nation. And when we do that, I think we can hold back sometimes the consequences that might come or the judgment that might yeah. come. I believe God is doing something. Yeah. I agree with you that fasting is not an end in itself. I think most of us would agree that. But it really is a means where we can worship the Lord, submit ourselves in humility to Him. But sometimes you think we forget maybe that God doesn't love us any more or any less, whether we fast or some of these things that we do more for our sake than his sake? How, how do you articulate that? When, well, know, I've done a seminar, and a question that sometimes is asked is what I think you're asking, can it be legalistic or legalism? And I think some people say that 
well, I want to manipulate God and get my way, so I'm going to fast to convince God to heal this person or to send this money or to bless this program. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not sure uh, that we can ever manipulate God. I read a statement the other day. If God answered every prayer that we ever ask, then it would say that we are in control of heaven. And sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers just to let us know who's in control. And I like that statement that uh, we cannot manipulate God and that fasting is not legalism. Uh, it can be. I think some people give money to God or tithe to God or attend church or read their Bible, and it's legalistic. Say, God, if I do this for you, uh, will you do something for me? Kind of like they're hoping to win the, the lottery. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the way you've described when you talk about the nine different types of fast. Now, there's no way that we can exhaust each of these different types of fast and do them justice. But would you just list them for us briefly and then kind of put a footnote on each one just so okay. we can understand what it really means? Let me read to you Isaiah 58, verses 6, 7, and 8. And this is the chapter that has more about fasting than any other chapter in the Bible. And as I read this passage, I'll just indicate where each of these nine fasts come in the Word of God. Isaiah 58, verse 6 begins, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, number one, to loose the bands of wickedness? And that's really the disciples' fast, to break sin's addiction. And then number two, it says, to undo heavy burdens, burdens of problems that we have. And the second is the Ezra fast, to solve our problems. Number three is to let the oppressed go free. And this is the fast for soul winning and revival and evangelism. It's called the Samuel's fast. And the fourth is, and that you break every habit or yoke, and that's the Elijah fast, to break bad habits that we have. Now, the next fast is called the widow's fast. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, that you bring the poor that are cast out of your house, and when you see the naked, that you cover them? Therefore, this is a fast where we give up our food and we give to other people. In the history of Christianity, there have been many churches, usually set up on a hill, and they would take the food off the table of the monks or the priest or the pastor and take it down and give to hungry people in the neighborhood or in the community. And that's a sense of which we go without to give others. And that is, that's really number five, which is the widow's fast, the sixth fast is the St. Paul's fast. And picking up our reading again from Isaiah 58, verse 8, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning. And the St. Paul's fast is for decision-making a wisdom. And the next fast, And thy health shall spring forth speedily. That's the Daniel fast, where you fast for physical health and or healing. The next one, the John the Baptist fast, is for spiritual testimony. And Isaiah says, and your righteousness shall go before you. Not your righteousness, but your testimony is Jesus in you. And the last one is the Esther fast for spiritual protection. And the glory of the Lord shall be thy rear guard. This is where we fast for a spiritual canopy or protection over our life from the evil one or the wicked one. That's, that's the nine fasts generally. Well, that, that's an intriguing list, and I'm sure that the pastors listening, they got all kind of sermons just out of, just out of those nine points. When, when people say to you, Elmer Towns, do you think people just fast to lose weight? Do you think people just use 
fasting as an opportunity to to uh, just kind of bring their appetite under control. What, what do you say to them? Well, I have heard that, and of course, fasting is not dieting, and people will diet to lose weight, and of course, that's not the purpose. You fast for a spiritual purpose, and you fast to touch God. Now, sometimes when you get to the Daniel fast, you eat appropriate food, and you put the right food in your body that you do get healthy, and sometimes the Daniel fast is a certain kind of food to get health, but also the Daniel fast may be a time when we touch God for healing. Uh, just about 12 years ago, the entire student body here at Liberty University, I'm talking about 5,000 students, fasted for the healing of our dean of students. His name was Vernon Brewer. He was given two to six months to live because of, of cancer in the chest and in the stomach. And they did radiation, they did chemotherapy, they operated, took a five-pound mass out of his chest. But on one day, 5,000 students shut down uh, the student commissary, the food service. We all fasted for that day, prayed. Everyone agreed to go to the prayer chapel and spend at least one hour. Some of us spent three and four hours there praying. And God answered, he's still alive. Hmm. And after 12 years, there's no sign of cancer. He is in a foreign missions endeavor, heading up a great work for Christ today. And I believe that God answers the big request of many people. But then let me quickly say, if you've never fasted, you ought to begin with what is called the Yom Kippur fast. Yom Kippur, obviously, is Day of Atonement. And the first mention of fast in the Bible is on the Day of Atonement in the book of Leviticus. And so God said, that day, go without eating. And it's a sundown to sundown fast. Jewish Jewish people would fast to this day from sundown to sundown on the Yom Kippur. Last time I was in Israel, I was talking to my Jewish guide. And I said to him, do you keep the Yom Kippur fast? Oh, yes. And then I was intrigued by, when do you actually break it? You begin at sundown one day. That means you eat a small snack right before the sun goes down as uh, allowed to the Jews, and then you don't eat the evening meal, breakfast, lunch, and you wait until the next day, till the sun goes down. And so my Jewish guide says, we always wait until we can see two lights in the sky. I thought, two lights? Why two? He said, a hungry man can see a light that's not there. <laughs> and then he went on to say, and we pray God it's not a cloudy night. So I would say if you've never fasted before, start out with a Yom Kippur fast and then move to a two- or three-day. And I would say there's two kinds. The natural fast is to do without food. The absolute fast is to do without food and water. Be careful of going without water or liquids, because you will dehydrate and cause damage to the brain cells and other parts of your body. And I, think, I think, Elmer, that's really important to stress here, because I think in our... Uh in our desire to, to have God bless us or to have him answer prayer that some people might think that you just go go on a, a hard fast where you don't eat, but you also don't take in liquids, and that could be dangerous to your health and your life, and it could make things worse than they are now. No, uh, I know some great men who have fasted 40 days, and they would take, say, fruit juice or vegetable juice each day to kind of sustain them. And you've got to take liquid in, uh, to keep your bowels and your 
bodily uh, organs functioning. Yeah. Otherwise, your whole system sets down and it is really becomes a problem. But let me go on to a second step. What about the diabetic who's listening to me? The people who have to eat, almost food becomes like a doctor's prescription. I think that at this place, uh, the diabetic should eat that which is necessary, not that which is fancy or that which is uh, like desserts or finger food, but eat that which is necessary, but eat to the glory of God and the purpose of God, just as the other person would not eat to the glory of God and to the purpose of God. And I always, I exhort people who are diabetic or perhaps maybe a nursing mother or perhaps a, a, a mother who's pregnant, you know, be very careful. You must eat to the glory of God, but pray with the same intensity. In your book, you talk about the fact that Dwight L. Moody made the statement, if you say I'll fast when God lays it on me, you never will. You're too cold and indifferent. Take the yoke upon you. Now, help me here, Elmer. If, if we wait to feel God is specifically calling us to fast, we may miss out on an experience that could change our lives. Do you agree with that, that that sometimes, whether we feel God saying or not, that the practice of fast or the discipline of fast might do something for us that uh, we could not even possibly imagine? Absolutely. I make the statement, when you take control of your physical appetites, you also take control of your emotional and psychological appetites. And therefore, it brings a discipline to the body. And again, I want to say, some people have just prayed and touched God and never fasted, but other people really need to uh, have that physical discipline to bring every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, in your book, you quote Thomas Collins. I, I want to read that and just get your response, because it literally sends chills up and down my back as I read it, because there have been so many times that I've wanted these kind of things to happen when I preached or, or when God call me to a specific series of services. Here's what he says. He said, I spent Friday in secret fasting, meditation, and prayer for help on the Lord's Day. About the middle of the sermon, a man cried out. At the cry, my soul ran over. I fell to prayer, nor could we preach any more for cries and tears all over the chapel. We continued in intercessions, and salvation came. Now, it seems to me, Elmer, that I mean, I, I know that there are a lot of guys listening from mainline churches and Roman Catholic churches and all kinds of, of different settings, but it would seem to me that whatever our perspective is, that there is nothing more exhilarating than to me in the midst of a service, a situation, a sermon, when all of a sudden it is God taking over and man stands back and lets God do his thing. Well, I believe that fasting is where you really so come to the place of resignation, physically, mentally, spiritually, that you let God do his thing. Yeah. Jonathan Edwards fasted for 24 hours before preaching the great sermon, Center in the Hand of an Angry God. We all know that. But if you read carefully his diary, I found that story that was uh, not often told, that 22 hours into his fast, he began to choke and to gag and had to take water out of absolute physical necessity. As I read his diary, I saw myself as a teenager when I would dive and try to link, swim the length of the pool underwater. 
And right before you get to the end, you're just gasping for air. Well, I, I saw that in Jonathan Edwards. And so he broke his fast. It's called violating the fast two hours before the end and took water. And then he went into the pulpit in great humility and a brokenness that I don't think we know that much about. And he preached the sermon that really brought about what is called the first great awakening. And people literally hung to the the pillars of the church for fear of slipping into hell. Yeah. And I'd say it was not his fasting that brought about the power on that sermon. It was his brokenness that God used. And therefore, uh, sometimes we may think that by fasting uh, we are touching God, but it's the broken spirit that really brings the power of God upon our life. Elmer, along those same lines, and I know that uh, you and I come out of maybe not exact same backgrounds, but similar backgrounds in the church, and you've seen a lot of wonderful things happen, and so have I. It seems to me that in many of the sermons I hear, and there's a lot of instruction giving, and there's a lot of performance done but there is not a whole lot of preaching with conviction. We used to talk about conviction in churches and services where men would literally run forward to, to accept the Lord. Before we came on, you talked about uh, an invitation I'd had one time to speak at uh, Dr. Criswell's church in Dallas and, and that he put in kneeler benches sometime after that or whatever. I don't, I don't know that whole... Well, I heard Dr. Criswell say that sermon changed the life of his church. And he was talking about the time the National Convention of Nazarenes yeah. was held in yeah. Dallas, and you were given the evening pulpit and, and preached, and such a great anointing came that uh, so many people came forward. He said they put in both kneelers and an old-fashioned altar. Before that, they had a platform with stairs. Now, remember, I used to belong to this church, yeah. and I knew what it was. And so he built in an old-fashioned we call a mourner's altar or uh, just an altar where people could come and kneel and pray. And he said, when I saw that, he said, this is what I felt God wanted in the church. You know, the mourner's bench came out of an old Methodist tradition, really. And, you know, it hadn't been, it's not that old a tradition, maybe 200 years, 250 years. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is, see, what you're saying to me turns me on in this fact, that that if before we stand up to preach, not so unlike Jonathan Edwards, where there is fasting and prayer and where there are these moments where on Saturdays from noon till, till the time we go to our pulpits on Sunday morning, there is this searching and this agonizing before the Lord and this refraining from food or whatever might interfere with, with our concentration. It would seem like maybe that could be the key to renewal and revival. But these young guys with families and Little League and all the things that go along with it, I remember I used to be so specific that Saturday nights, I mean, I just drove my family nuts because I would just become so reclusive on Saturday nights that I, that I wouldn't go out to eat. I wouldn't go anywhere with them. And, and maybe that was selfish, but it was almost like I felt, I felt dirty if I didn't spend this time alone with the Lord. Well, I think many of the pastors who listen know that I have spent my life interviewing the greatest men of God of all denominations. And uh, so many of them have said, the Saturday night is the time I must meet God, yeah. not watch television, yeah. but go to the office or go. I remember being in Phoenix one time and a pastor taking me up to South Mountain. He said, I come up here almost every Saturday night. I can look out over the great city and God again breaks my heart 
And from this place, looking at the city, I can pray for two or three hours. Mm. And this was a man who built a fast-growing church in Phoenix. And Jack Hayford, a good friend of mine, says that he goes to his office on Saturday night, and someone is there in the outer office to make sure he's not interrupted. He can spend time praying, and then I might add, writing music. He said some of the songs he writes comes right on out of that Saturday night encounter with God, getting the heart ready for a Sunday morning. Yeah. Now, there's an old adage that says, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. If you don't have the convictions, you can't work them up in the pulpit. And I would say you get your convictions on your face before God, and that's the place where the power comes. Yeah. Now, Elmer's, we kind of bring this... Uh interview into for a landing here i you know what we've just talked about in these last five or ten minutes has just recharged me and has given me a whole bunch of ideas that i'm going to be using with pastors but are there others that stand out to you that you look back and say this came as a result of prayer and fasting this book on prayer and fasting really came out of prayer and fasting i was at a meeting at regal books gospel light and I said, you ought to do or have someone do a book on prayer and fasting. And they sat around and suggested several people. And finally, I said, I could do the book. And so they said, why can you do it? And then I told them how I've been teaching fasting for 20 years. I went home and told my wife. I said, I've got to do a book on fasting. I've only got one sermon, one hour long. Well, to make a long story short, <laughs> she said to me, why don't you fast about your book on fasting? And so I committed myself over a long period of time, fasting one day a week for this book. And I fasted and prayed, and at the end of that day, I was breaking my fast, and it was later at night, my wife and I were having something to eat, and she said to me, well, what did you get from the Lord today? I said, I just have one sermon with nine points and nine different things about fasting. And as I said that, the Holy Spirit just broke in and said, there are your nine chapters. Talk about the nine different things you can do in fasting. And so... Uh, I I take that as a direct intervention from God of what he can do. Well, Elmer, I just can't thank you enough for spending the time with us. I know that you've been an inspiration to pastors, young and old, and you've helped educate them and mentor them and shepherd them and encourage them and hold their arms up and, and keep them moving and keep them going. And I, I know through the years you have, uh, you've sure blessed me with your writings and you're just words of encouragement because Elmer, you really are an encourager. I, I hardly, I've not heard you say a bad word about anybody ever, I don't think. And well, I believe in the work of God, and I believe in you, H.B., and I support what you're doing and what, the, what Dr. Dobson is doing through Focus on the Family, and you, I'm just a cheerleader for you fellows, and let's just keep doing the work of God. Well, thank you, Elmer. God bless you, and uh, keep on writing. Thank you. H, you know, is the uh, father of a teenager who is uh, thinking very seriously about where she's going to go to college. Mm -hmm. When I hear a man like that and realize he's uh, president of a university, Liberty University, and, and hear his heart and, uh, I think, understand where he's coming from, especially as it relates to our topic uh, today, Approaching God, I, I, um, I begin to feel as if maybe that's a university, Meredith, my daughter, <laughs> should seriously consider. Well, Liberty is a great university, and, yeah. and the thing about Elmer is you, you appreciate the fact that he's upbeat. I, I've never seen him down, and I know right. that he's had reason to be down, but I really do believe that his fasting and prayer and writing and scripture reading, that his life has been richer for the time he spent in the, in the exercise of faith, if I could say it that way. 
Well, I know it's your heart, your desire, that as pastors listen to these messages, uh, that they carry with them, carry away uh, new insight into whatever topic we're talking about, and especially today's topic of approaching God. Mike, Isaiah 58, 6 through 8 says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover them, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Hmm. Mike, as we've done so many of these additions, uh, uh, for those pastors who get to the end of the tape, usually at the fourth cassette, I've always taken a moment like this just to kind of share it as a pastoral moment, some of the experiences that I've had and some of the things that I've uh, I've seen. And a lot of pastors around the country refer to these pastoral moments. If I were to ask you, and I know this is going to take you back and, and maybe we'll have to stop tape and even think about it, can you think of a moment in your life where you've been closer to God than any other? Was there a, a happening, a moment, uh, riding your mm-hmm, bike down mm-hmm, through mm-hmm. the back roads of some <laughs> of some little yeah. village? Can you think of a moment like that? Um, I, I can think of a specific moment, and I can speak in general terms of uh, times when I've been closer to God. I think yeah. it, uh, it, it has been uh, in those instances where I have allowed myself to be most vulnerable. I have just opened every door that yeah. I know of, and the specific time had to do with uh, my future uh, and, and caring for my family. Uh, and it was just before coming to focus on the family and feeling as if I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I, um, one evening in the middle of the night, actually, uh, just spoke with the Lord in a way that I had never done before and, and laid on the floor and opened my arms and just said, Lord, I, whatever I'm hanging on to, whatever direction I'm trying to go, that is not your direction mm-hmm. for my life that I don't understand, please just clarify that for me. Realize that I want to do nothing more than serve you and be in the center of your will. And uh, what seemed like just a few minutes, which may have been more than an hour, uh, was one of the the closest times that I have ever felt to the Lord as I spoke with him. And then in the ensuing days, saw how he directed my path here to focus. And I have never felt more close to the center of his will for my life than I have been over the 17 years that I've spent here. And I think what you have just said, that many of those listening to us would uh, would echo, that in those moments when we are willing to surrender, in those moments right. when we're quiet, exactly, and there's moments when we stop flailing around, <laughs> is when we feel the arms of the Lord around us, maybe more so than mm-hmm. when we're moving all around. Right. I, you know, I think, I'm sure you would agree that the birth of your children, you, know, you saw these little, oh, little yes. bitty babies, all and right. you said, wow, yes. uh, you know, well, how do I deserve this? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and probably other moments like that. I I think, as, I, uh, as I'm just uh, trying to, to put these 
last thoughts and perspective here that it was the first time I visited the Holy Land. And I was a young minister. And as a young minister, and you know my personality, I was flailing around a lot trying to grow and be known and do all the kind of things that young ministers are apt to do in their formative years. And I found myself in the old city of Jerusalem, separated from, from the others. And I'd always remembered the, the walk that Jesus had taken uh, not before Palm Sunday, but after Palm Sunday, after all the crowds had had dispersed and he and his disciples went back to Bethany. And I'd, I'd walked that length of, of road from Bethany to the, to the Mount of Olives and, and down through the Garden of Gethsemane. And I, I stopped at, at the place where they said that it was where Jesus prayed and, and literally asked, that this cup be taken from him. Right. And it was that moment when he felt so lonely, when the disciples had fallen asleep, and when he was all by himself. And in that quiet moment, I, I tried to imagine myself, uh, not as Jesus, but just as this young pastor who was really struggling, trying to find direction and trying to find style of ministry and trying to find a mentor and trying to wrestle with all the family pressures and how I was going to be a good dad and a good husband and, and serve the people and trying to get my ego out of the way. And I'll never forget that moment, Mike. I, I know that it wasn't the Lord who came, even as he said to Jesus, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But I tell you, it's pretty close to that. Hmm. Because he saw this young pastor ragged around the edges, impulsive, not so unlike the Apostle Peter, uh, faithless in some ways, not so unlike Thomas. And in spite of all those flaws, I sensed and felt his presence and his arms around me in a very unique and special way. I always remember that moment. It, it was a defining moment. And, and, and as, as I've grown and, and matured and now I find myself in this place of responsibility as a pastor to pastor. There still are those moments that, that like, uh, even with my little grandkids, I just kind of want to crawl into the lap of my gracious Lord and put my arms around him and just let him hug me. Right. And in doing so, kind of let me know that everything's going to be okay. Right. Huh. It seems silly at 60 that you need the presence of the Lord to tell you everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But you know what? At 60, I think you need it even more oh, yes. than I did at 30 or 29. Because it, as you come to a, to a point in your ministry where you see the window that was so wide open for so many years, beginning to close just a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, and you realize how little time is left. That's the time you really need to know everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And I just say to these who are listening, you know, as you've listened to the, you know, to Stafford and to Towns and to Blackaby and to Ronnie Floyd, you've had to put yourself somewhere in there. And I hope that you've put yourself in the lap of our Lord Jesus. And as you've approached him, you've approached him as one 
who loves you as though you were the only one in all the world to love, knowing that you're very, very special. Just like Elmer Towns, he, uh, he does wrap his arms around us and he does say good things about us, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's what we want to hear. Well, this concludes our Pastor to Pastor tapes on Approaching God. If you have any comments on this or other ministries here at Focus on the Family, we would love to hear from you. For your subscription to this bi-monthly audio resource called Pastor to Pastor, write us at Focus on the Family, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80995, or call us at 719-531-5181. And uh, we're here from 6 a.m. until 7 p.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Friday, and then from 8 until 4 on Saturday. That number again is 719-531-5181. I'm Mike Trout. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to being with you again on the next Pastor to Pastor. Pastor.